So this morning we look to Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our study through the gospel according to Matthew. And we are certainly at a very pivotal point of the gospel narrative uh, to this point. Uh, So this morning I wanted to focus our attention uh, on the last few verses of the first section. And so we'll look to uh, verses uh, with some overlap, verses 5 uh, to 14. Uh, But I wanted to read that section to you this morning. We'll read from Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, all the way down to verse 14. Verse 1 reads, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The title of this sermon this morning is The Signs of the Return of Jesus Christ. And so when we look to this passage, we are looking at the answer to the question which the disciples asked Jesus in verse uh, 3. When they asked Him, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So as we look at the verses of this particular context and also some of the verses that follow beginning with verse 15, we're looking at the answer to that question. That they ask Jesus, what will be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age? And so uh, when when we study this particular passage and when we look at the verses We don't superimpose modern events on them, although we can apply what is taking place in the world around us to help us better understand what we ought to do to prepare as we live out uh, our faith in Christ during the church age. So during this time, we must consider that what is taking place in the events of this particular context point to the tribulation and point to that time after the tribulation as we look ahead to the verses that follow the passage that we're in. So the disciples, they asked Jesus a specific question, and they pointed to an exact point in time. And their question was specific as they asked, what will be the sign of his coming, again, and of the end of the age? And these are tied directly to one another. 
These are two questions, however, they equally point to an age, a time. So their question was not what would happen during the course of their own ministries, during the course of the apostolic age, and during the time in which the church has its inception in the world itself. That was not their question. And so Jesus did not answer questions that they were not asking. He answered the question they asked. And so in verses 4 and beyond, Jesus specifically answered what the sign of his coming would be and the sign of the end of the age as it held to the future. So Jesus' answer is parallel to the same vantage point given to us in Revelation 6. In fact, as we read it last week, in fact, as Jesus mentions the things they should expect and remain on guard against, he pointed specifically at each turn to the seals which are located in Revelation 6. And so if you were to look at Revelation 6 and make your way down through that text, you would see that the things that Jesus is saying aligns perfectly to each of those seals being broken. And also consider the text before us, the context before us, as Jesus said what he said to them, it is prophecy. It's prophecy, just as it's tied to the prophecy in Revelation 6, just as some events as we look forward will be tied to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, also in Daniel chapter 11. But that all of this is prophecy, and Jesus being the uh, being the testimony of prophecy. When one prophesies, he is the culmination. He is the intent of all prophecy. He is the fulfillment of all prophetic utterance. And so when we understand that Jesus' words not only tie to this particular gospel, he's also bringing in that which has been prophesied through the prophets of old in the Old Testament, the minor prophets, and even the, some of the things that the major prophets said. But that also he is referring to those events that have been prophesied to John on the island of Patmos in the future. And so here we have is a goal set before us. And that goal as we look to this text, that goal as we look to Matthew 24 as a whole, is to consider the author's intended meaning. That, that is our goal. But it's also to understand how the divine author has used the genre of prophecy, prophetic books in the Bible, to illuminate and unite the testimony of Scripture. And so it's not simply that the prophecies are where they are and we take them as distinct features apart from one another, but all the prophecies lead toward the redemptive plan of God. And they're clear. They're clear. They're clear to those who have God's spirit and in, dwelled in them. So when he deals with their question, he deals with first the arena of deception. He deals with deception. Because they were to understand that the war that they were involved in, even though they were in the present age, the implications in the future ahead of them and the future ahead of those generations that would live beyond them, is that the war would be raised in the arena of deception. And we have talked about that in other points in the gospel according to Matthew. In several points because you have Jesus fighting against a religious establishment that wages a war of deception. And also in the modern context with which we live, you have the modern world itself is given over to deception. Both religious deception and uh, deception that the world tries to uh, bring forward in the minds of people. 
But it has not only been the war for which Israel had been immersed during the events listed in the Gospels. Even as you look to how the Lord delivered Israel during the Exodus, it did not happen without the enemies of Yahweh attempting to wage a war of deception to keep the Israelites enslaved. And so he's warning about things that also pertain to what has been tried against Israel before as a people, and then what will come to them at the end of the age in this arena of deception. And if you were to look at the Exodus account, which I believe ties to the deliverance of Israel in the temporal sense, just as the end times will in the tribulation period will deal with Israel's uh, redemption, the elect Israel, uh, her redemption. What you see is that every turn in the Exodus account of Moses leading the Israelites to freedom with each sign that he performs, which with each sign that God had given him to perform, Pharaoh called his, his uh, magicians to emulate the same signs in order to combine the sacred and the profane. So as to confuse the Israelites into remaining enslaved to Egypt and Pharaoh, to make that which God has made distinct very common. That which God has made holy, he wanted to make it very common. And he being Satan, but also God hardening Pharaoh's heart to the point where Pharaoh was responding in a way that was uh, in accordance to his nature. But it is the same case as we look to the future events of deception regarding the person of Christ and his works. So just as one will be sent to be the true Messiah, there will be false messiahs. Just as one is the Christ, there will be the Antichrist. Just as God has set his holy temple on the hill, there will be an abomination of desolation upon the hill. And so this war of deception takes its aim at the very particular things that God has decreed. And we see that at the outset of Jesus' warning. There would not only be future signs to shine light on the truth, but there would be signs aimed to deceive and mislead that future generation about whom Jesus is speaking in this text. So those signs would test the faithfulness of those who hold to the truth and would mark off the nearness of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That was the function, the essential function of those signs. Again, it would test the faithfulness of those who hold to the truth and would mark off the nearness of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the end times and we look at eschatology and we study prophecy that ties to the end times, there's not confusion about the end times. At least there shouldn't be confusion about the end times because Jesus was very clear. And if one is willing to tie the prophetic uh, as it relates to this uh, this time in which it takes place between the Old Covenant and the New, to the prophetic testimony and also to the future apostolic witness, then you would find great clarity in what is proclaimed. And Jesus, aptly so, provides a warning to help his disciples, but also to help the future generations. And Jesus answered and said to them, in verse 4, See to it that no one misleads you. He says in verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. We will get to it, but what you'll see is that the world during the age of the tribulation is going to experience 
the increase of lawlessness and deception. And what that lawlessness and deception will be motivated by is pseudo-religious antichrist, uh, an antichrist platform that has both a geopolitical component, but it also has a false religious component. And so this war on the, against the minds of the people will be established in deception. And so the Antichrist will wage this war. But there will be many. There will be many. For it says in verse 5 that many will line up to wage this war of deception. What will happen at first is they will not come during this tribulation period and say outright that they belong to Satan. Because there would be no deception in that. There would be no deception in that toward the nation of Israel if the deceivers were to come out and say, we are here from Satan, we represent the kingdom of darkness, and we are here to overthrow God. Quite frankly, they're going to come and say that they are Christ. Why? Well, this tells you that apostate Judaism and uh, the false religion of Islam and all the other false religions, many of them in the Eastern world, are waiting for some form of a Messiah to come without identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And so if that is the case, and it is, then the deception will be waged as one is going to be sent as the Christ. He will raise up and say he is the Christ. And he will do so effectively because it says he will mislead many. So they will say that they come from Christ, and even that they are from Christ. And as I mentioned, this is not only something that will occur, it's something that will be effective. Because it says, Jesus says, and they will mislead many. And you can be sure that whenever there and wherever there is deception, that there will be a people who will be destroyed. And most of the time it's going to be from the deceivers. People will be destroyed from those who deceive them. Why? Because that is Satan's nature. He's a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a slanderer. And he has no use for the people he's deceiving except to destroy them. And so, as we look to this very verse and to this very text and the verses that follow, it would be enough that they would be deceived during the tribulation period in which Jesus warns. But then comes war. There will be war. In verse 6, he says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And you may be wondering, or you may not be wondering, but it does seem a fitting pause here to ask the question, how then do we not ascribe these events to the lifetime of the apostles? And I say that that would not be the case because of the future tense and the question again that they asked. That they were asking Jesus about the sign of his return, his second coming, and the end of the age. Again, they were not asking him what would happen in their lifetime. Peter did ask that similar question on behalf of the disciples when he asked what would essentially be in it for them 
as they have left all things to follow Christ. And Jesus answers that question about what they can look forward to in their lives as apostles. But this is about the future. This is about the future. And they are to be on guard against the events that may lead future generations into deception. So it's not that this morning we close our Bibles, we kick our feet up a little bit and say, well, this is all future. So this has no bearing on the present. But that's not true because the way that one gets to the point of this global deception is to take part in very small matters of deception. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the deception will not end in simply believing the lies that will benefit them. That's not where the deception ends. So some people may even take pride in the fact that they disagree with you about the scripture, that they disagree with God's redemptive plan as it's outlined, even in this passage, that somehow it's unclear so we need not study it. But deception always, always seeks to destroy. There will be a seek and destroy component on the platform of war. It's not simply that there will be the hearing about wars. That one might watch the news and see that there are wars taking place and that there are rumors of wars. This is to show the people in that tribulation generation that the world is moving toward lawlessness. And that the nations themselves are like in Psalm 2 in an uproar. And that they're beginning to turn their weapons not only against one another, but they will turn their weapons against Christ, against the Lord's anointed one, against the Messiah. And so the events in our context shows that these things happen as they do on a scale previously unknown to man. That's what you have to understand with the events as we look at this context and in the coming weeks as we look at verses 15 and beyond. That it's a matter of scale because one might say, well, there are wars now. There are rumors of wars. There are deceptions. There are false Christs. There are antichrists. Because there have been many who have come, as John has said in his epistle. And there are deceivers. There's religious deceivers. There, there's people in society who are moving the world at large into an area of lawlessness. However, you're looking at a time that is not necessarily on par in a sense and comparable to what is taking place in this text. Because the text is dealing with scale, the enormity of it. That these things will happen at such a heightened sense that nothing has happened like it before and nothing will happen like it in the future because this is driving toward the end of the age. And so these events are unprecedented in their frequency and they're unprecedented in their scale. And so there will be this seek and destroy component. It will take place on a platform of war. And that war is... Aim to destroy, to kill, to pillage, and plunder. And so when we even look at war and rumors of war, the nature of war is not pretty. So it's not just talking about two people fighting. It's talking about all the effects of that as they affect the nations and the kingdoms. All the selfishness, all the self-preservation, all the murder, all the destruction. That it will be wars and rumors of wars. This constant aim at lawlessness where the nations no longer are in confederation with one another in terms of some moral uh, compass, but that they turn on one another. 
And we know that the times will be frightening for those in that tribulation age. Because it says you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that what? You are not frightened. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. These events happen as deception, and they have given way to either one of two positions that man in that tribulation era must take. He must either enter into full compliance with the rise of false antichrist, or he must suffer death. And so this is the reality set before those who are alive during that tribulation age. And you see glimpses of this in the modern age. You see this happening in the modern world around you, although it's not to the scale of both lawlessness and the scope of every single Christian has to come to terms in this age with this reality, at least not yet. But it is in a sense where every Christian is persecuted to a degree. Every Christian is, uh, there are attempts by the society at large to intimidate, to crush, to, to make them blaspheme to tempt them to sin against God. All these things are taking place toward the Christian in this hour. Now imagine that the scope of that increases across not only the entire world, but that all the nations and the kingdoms begin to conspire against Christ and his Christians. And that's coming. That's coming in our text. There will be in the tribulation the majority who are given over to deception. Because it says about them, many will be misled, many will be deceived. But there will also be those who are preserved. And I would argue that as we are in the church age, we do what we do continually, standing faithfully upon God's word, contending for the faith, loving one another, uh, tearing down the strongholds against Christ. We do that as a signal to identify with that future generation of the elect during the tribulation. Because their faithfulness will be built upon ours, just like ours were, was built upon the testimony and the Christians before us. That it's a building testimony on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it is why now you study the saints and the scripture, and you study their faithfulness, and you study the gospels, and what you realize is these are individuals that bring encouragement to your soul. And even if you can't find the actual individual, you find in the collective witness of those who have come before and have proclaimed Christ, and even those who have been martyred for the faith, you find your encouragement in the one in whom they had faith. So we know that during this time there will be those who are elected unto eternal life in Jesus Christ, who will be called to resist deception. And they will also be called to resist that which would overtake them if they do not watch. But as the rumors of war and the war themselves are heightened on both, on both a global and historical scale, beyond any previous war and any previous rumors of wars, Jesus warned two things. He warned in this particular verse that the events are necessary. So we ought not shy away from them, nor do we shy away from studying them, nor do we shy away from teaching them. 
And we certainly don't shy away from understanding that the, uh, those who are alive in the tribulation age will have to go through them. And I'm speaking of not those who are taken up in the rapture. I'm speaking of those whom God will be dealing with among His elect Israel. But these events are necessary because they lead to the end of the age and thus the return of Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. They do not, and, and the second point is they do not signal the very end of the age. So the wars and the rumors of wars on the scale that we haven't seen to this point are not the end of the age, but just the events that signal the end, the end is near. And we see that because of Jesus' words at the end of verse 6. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. It says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And then he says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The famines and the earthquakes come as they do in the tribulation age to shake the very foundations of the earth to its core. And the wars will take away all earthly stability that men might otherwise find in the world's systems and kingdoms. So where one would have a sense of national pride, ethnic pride, and even looking at the kingdoms of this world and trying to find a safe haven from the events that are coming, watching as both lawlessness increases and the wars between the nations increase until they seek to destroy one another, there's nowhere to hide. And then even your necessities, in a sense we're looking at the very beginning of the uncreation because famine has a sense in which it takes away that which you need in terms of your sustenance, your food, that which you need to nourish yourself. And then earthquakes shake the very core of that where you would find to rest your head, a place to find as a home. But also it shakes everything about the world. Just as the nations are warring against one another, the, earth, the earthquakes topple even its own economical structure. And we see that, uh, we see that in Revelation as well. But these are things that on, are on the scale. These are not simply tremors. These are things that shake the very top of, uh, uh, topological and topographical um, places in the world and bring them to their knees. These are all, all these events are global and eschatological, meaning that they have not occurred to the level and scale at any time in the past age nor during the present church age. And do you know what will happen when these things come? Do you know what it is you're looking at? You're looking at that the world will in these first societal and cosmic signs turn against itself. And you see that now with something of a so-called pandemic that really hasn't reached the levels numerically and anything else that you're being told it has. And there's debate about that. But the world has no problem turning against itself in a means to preserve itself. Well, imagine when the scale and the scope is beyond anything you've ever seen during the tribulation age. That the world will, at these first societal and cosmic signs, seek to turn against itself. They will begin to fight. 
Whatever pseudo-unity and coalitions these governments have formed in the past will give way to the use of all their resources aimed at the destruction of one another and the world. They'll seek global dominance, but they'll also seek ultimate preservation. And as I've said, what you're looking at during the time in which Jesus says what he says, he's describing events that even take place in the future. And he's describing them even in the cosmic sense as the signs and the seals, uh, the signs that take place and the seals that are to be broken. But we must consider that these events, they're... um, They're eschatological, and we're looking at the uncreation. You're looking at the world itself being uncreated. That is, God is taking back everything that he did at the outset of creation. And as God himself begins to take back that which, we is, that which he has given to man, it will no longer reign on the just and the unjust as a means of his provision. With these events during the tribulation... Because of the harpazo, because of the great snatching away, because of that which we call the rapture, you're looking at the absence of the Lord's church as a stay of execution against all of mankind. Because make no mistake, of all the things that the world plots against the Lord's actual church, his true church, you don't want a world in which the Lord's church does not exist. Because if the Lord's church does not exist, the only expression of his grace and mercy through his body is taken from the earth. And what is there left to do except to go to full lawlessness? Not only corruption, but lawlessness, murder. And I'm talking about on a national and global scale, where nations begin to destroy one another. This particular cosmic sign and seal, as is plain to us in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 to 6, will cause both famine through inflation and through pestilence and destruction. So on a global and economic scale, the world and its kingdoms will begin to not only control the prices, but there will also be destruction, where people not only can't afford to have what they need, but everything that they need is rancid, destroyed, overtaken. It's bad. This is awful. But these things are necessary, and they must take place. And as bad as they are, verse 8 says, as Jesus said, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. During the tribulation period, the birth pangs mark the closeness of what will be born. What is to be born, if we carry the analogy forward, is the return of Jesus Christ, the consummation of his glory. Birth pangs along this scale signal birth, but birth pangs are not actual birth, and they're not birthing itself. Yet birth pangs do not occur so long to place the actual birth so far into the future. So what is mentioned in verses 4 to 7 signal the very nearness of the end. 
But they are merely the beginning of the end time events. There will be more. During the tribulation, individuals, the nations and the kingdoms will not be satisfied, however, with the pride of warfare and bloodlust for power and turning against one another. The corrupt never are. Usurpers are never happy to simply destroy people among them. What they will do next is in verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. What they will do after the dissatisfaction of their bloodlust toward one another, the nations and the kingdoms, is they will come after those who truly belong to Christ. And whatever is left of them will assemble together to afflict the believers and and turn them over and deliver them to death. And in doing so, they will also spur on a great apostasy. Look at verse 10. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. This is not simply death during war, but it's the broken seal of the last enemy, death personified. What he does is he seeks out a quarter of the entire earth's inhabitants and inflicts them with the sword of execution. The nations will not cease to hate one another as evidenced by their warfare against one another. But what they'll do is they'll kill the believers in that age and have the common interests of hatred toward the believers. That while they inflict distress and calamity on one another and the tragedy of war itself, they will also seek to do those things and wage war against the believers. And yet their actions will be so disheartening, so dangerous, and so flagrant. Those who seek to preserve themselves will fall away from Christ, proving they were never His. And, on top of that, more than that, there will be as a consequence of this apostasy an increase of treachery and betrayal. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. You only betray people if your intent is to preserve yourself above all others. And if conditions deem it so, where lawlessness increases, so does treachery, so does corruption, so does murder. And it says that there's an effect that will take place. Opportunists show up. And false prophets, false teachers, they're opportunists. They find those circumstances that will benefit their deception and benefit their goals to deceive people. And it's the same here during the tribulation age. That many false prophets will arise, it says in verse 11, Jesus says, and will mislead many. Enter in then the false prophets of the tribulation. As opportunists, they are capitalizing off the fear, the terror, the unbelief toward those who flee toward unbelief and away from righteousness. They're saying, come into our arms. Come to us for safety. 
And you see that this climate of lawlessness is not only societal. People, when they typically speak of the end times, they speak of societal lawlessness. And in some cases, they don't have much regard for the religious lawlessness that will take place. But it's a climate of lawlessness on both and all fronts. And we see the effects of it. We see the effects of it all throughout this prophecy. Quite frankly, those who rise up against Christ will for a time prevail. Temporally. Because it says they will kill believers. You know, it's also why, and we pause here, it's also why, how do you get to this point? Even in the modern age. And why stand here Sunday after Sunday making distinctions about true Christianity versus false Christianity? It's because if you speak of Christianity as a means of people going on some cruise ship or you know, some foray into a better life, where you just theorize them, you place them in an institutional mindset where they're just theorizing over doctrine. They won't be prepared for the things that aren't even end times events. They won't be prepared for deception that's not on a global scale. But you know what they'll do? They'll make disciples of their own who certainly will wage war against Christians in the future. And so it's so important to declare what is true about Christianity. And quite frankly, in doing so, you're admitting biblical Christianity is not for everybody because God doesn't save everyone. The proclamation is before everyone. And it's true in this context that we're seeing here, you recognize the distinctions are plain. That this is serious. Whenever you see something like this that has not been seen before on the global scale, on a scope that we are seeing, Jesus' answer to them is about the sobriety, the seriousness, the gravity of their ministries in light of the future. Because that is the hope of every Christian is and ought to be the return of Jesus Christ. But it has its effects that there will be this killing of believers. Nations will join together to not only hate believers in the age to come, but to express that hatred. And in those age, in that age, those who are in the tribulation perhaps might ask the question, who can we trust? And the answer will be not many at all, only a few. But the love and compassion for one another will also change. Even the goodwill that man has toward his fellow man, you'll see an end to that in the tribulation. For one another, the love and compassion will give way to anger, rage, murder, and hatred. All because this lawlessness increases. And what does that mean? Because it's permissible. There will be, in a sense, no restraint toward the sinful man's nature. And he will be able to express that sin in a society that will not punish him, per se, for doing so. For in this, we not only see the characteristics of the society in tribulation, 
But understand who is behind all this. You're seeing the adversary Satan, who is a murderer from the beginning, accuser of the brethren, chief slanderer, most active in these people during the tribulation age. And if you were to study the prophecy in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, and even Daniel 10, to have greater context for what appears in Daniel 11, all the way to the very end of it, you would see that Satan is very active, very active in his goal to murder, to destroy, to steal. He's active. That doesn't mean he's sovereign. That doesn't mean he's all-powerful. He's simply active. But he's also another enemy to be destroyed when Jesus Christ destroys him. And so there is triumph. But Jesus said in verse 12 that most people's love will grow cold. What does that mean? It is a consequence because of what precedes it. It says because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The word here is agapao, from which we get agape, agape love. And it signifies that love that believers have toward one another. And secular ancient writers, ancient Greco-Roman writers, would use the word from time to time to deal with that which corresponds to man's goodwill and love that man has for one another, to see his fellow man succeed in as much as he's able within moral restraint. But I believe it goes beyond that here. I believe that it certainly deals with how believers or those who are professing to be as such correspond to one another. Because in most of the cases of the scripture, agape deals with that kind of love. And I say that because in verse 12, it's not dealing with a wholesale apostasy of every individual of whom it's speaking. And I'll explain what I mean. During the increase of lawlessness, the benevolence and goodwill gives way to the poisonous winds of lawlessness and destruction. And it's not so much that the people, in a sense, abandon love for one another in order to take apart uh, or to take part in destruction in the society around them. That's not what it's saying. And it's not saying that about everyone. What it's saying is that there's believers who will need to persist even more in their love for one another so as not to abandon one another. As the full force of the world system turns against them and pursues them to death as public enemy number one. The idea here is that the love is not extinguished across the board for everyone. Obviously, there are those who will fall away. It's not extinguished, but it will be chilled. That's the idea when it says that the love of many will grow cold or the love of most people. It doesn't say all, and it certainly doesn't say that all of them will abandon the Lord. But what will happen is the events that have been unprecedented on their scale will serve as a tremendous temptation for all, and some will persist. 
It will be tried by the enemy of agape love, which is self-preservation. As the believers are murdered, hated, pressed, and moral governance gives way to anarchy, believers will be faced with the temptations of hatred, the winds of apostasy blowing in to drive out their love for one another. Let me repeat that. This love that is chilled will be tried by the enemy of agape love, self-preservation, as the believers are murdered, hated, pressed, and moral governance gives way to anarchy, believers will be faced with the temptations of hatred, the winds of apostasy blowing in to drive out their love for one another. But this will not cause all to abandon the Lord Jesus and His commandments, specifically His commandment to love one another. No matter the world's conditions or disposition toward believers. Why do I say this? Because in this environment, while all of this is taking place, look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He will be saved. So you're not looking at every single individual during this tribulation age is going to be judged and condemned to eternal fire. You're not looking at that. You're looking at individuals Many who will be led astray. And the few, as it's always been in Christianity, biblical Christianity, the few who will need to persist through all of these things. That there will be a war raged against their own affections. And that they're going to have to come to the kind of, I believe, decision, and by decision I mean that which God grants to us, but the kind of decision that I believe we are faced with now on a smaller scale. Do you have affections for this world and this life, this world's kingdoms, this world's treasures, this world's economy? Or do you hope for a better kingdom? Do you hope for a king of kings? Is your hope in eternal life or is it in economic relief? Is your hope in the traditions of the country that is being lost? Or is it in the truth of God's word and his eternal kingdom which cannot be shaken? Because that is what is before every single believer in every single age. And it manifests itself in different ways through different empires, different kingdoms, different circumstances. But on the scale that we're looking at in this tribulation age, it's coming before Christians in a way that has not come before them before and will not since. What awaits them if they persevere? Because during the tribulation, it says about them, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end, will be, he will be saved. Their love for one another must persist just as they must persevere. I would say that a perfect analogy for this is that in the absence of conflict, I'm talking conflict against your soul, it's not difficult to love one another. When things are going well for you and for me, we love one another. We treat one another a certain way. And I'm talking about Christians across the board. That it's quite simple to love one another or to at least appear as though we do. But when there's conflict, when your world is being torn down, when the enemy of your soul has assailed you, has assailed every Christian you know, can you show up before one another and love one another in the Lord Jesus Christ? When all the earth itself is shaking, when all the economic standing has
has been torn down. When the foundations of the world itself is being thrown away. When society itself comes under judgment, can the Christians persist in their love for one another? Well, in the tribulation age, the one who does it will see his salvation. I like the way that Daniel puts it, the prophet Daniel puts it in his prophecy. If you read from Daniel 9 to chapter 11 to get a context, it talks about the perseverance that one must have during the tribulation. And it says that the tribulation lasts, or this back half of it, the worst part of it is the amount of days it gives, which amounts to about three and a half years. And then it's, it renders a blessing, so to speak, on the individuals who can survive slightly beyond the three and a half years. When we talk about temporal time, we're not talking about a whole lot of time, but we're talking about events that are persistent. And they will not stop. And they are aimed at the Christian day in, day out, with no rest. So the one who will persevere need only to persevere to the very end of the tribulation in the power of God. He's not asking anyone to live thousands of years under distress and tribulation. But it's a matter of days until the very end comes. And what awaits them is their salvation. And this is the essence of it. This is why I believe the scripture speaks as it does about faith. Because of what's coming. Not necessarily because of where you are, but because of the future and the future hope, although it has implications about where you are. It is the essence of walking by faith and not sight to persevere in the face of this calamity. For what they see is a world that seems to be abandoned. It's a world that seems the believers in the tribulation age are, in fact, left. And it seems that the world will align together in the murderous hatred and will succeed. But the end is coming. The end is coming. And the believer must hold fast to the very end, and there awaits the glory of their salvation in Jesus Christ. And when one sees Jesus Christ, it is their faith made sight. But what this passage is not teaching in light of what is said in verse 14 as we close our text, it's not teaching that perseverance initiates salvation. God initiates salvation. It's not saying your perseverance initiates the end itself. For the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world is a testimony to all the nations initiates the end. But the perseverance of the Christian is required. The proclamation of the kingdom to the nations and all the earth signals that the end is here. Both the nations and all the people in the tribulation period must hear the gospel of the kingdom preached to them and then the end has come. And in studying this, I believe it certainly deals with the events of Revelation 11. But it also deals with those who are joined with those witnesses in Revelation 11. That there will be on a global scale the proclamation of God's truth, the testimony of his kingdom to nations that are, by demonstration, showing that they are Satan's kingdoms, 
And they are partaking in this lawlessness. And here you come with the proclamation of the kingdom. And so, both the nations and all the people must hear the gospel of the kingdom preached to them, and then the end has come. This proclamation then must be laid before all men and all nations as not some hypothetical atonement, but the terms of the king of kings to either end their full rebellion by their own surrender or by their destruction. This is the proclamation of the kingdom. It is the proclamation of the gospel. When people say, what is the gospel? The gospel has a saving and destructive element to it. That you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, or you will die in your sins and perish and suffer eternal torment. But the kingdom itself is coming in such a way in this particular context, as we look at the chronology as we do, it's coming uh, to destroy all the other kingdoms and destroy those who belong to those kingdoms. And there will be other events that move past the birth pangs and birth pangs and toward the end of the age and the coming of Christ. For Jesus has not in this text answered it fully, but he is answering it fully as we look ahead. And the next time we're in Matthew 24, we'll look to verses 15 to 27. Because that is a part of the question the disciples ask, and that is the question that Jesus is going to answer. We are not yet at the second coming of Jesus Christ in the vantage point of our text, but it is coming. We are drawing near. As we close, let me read for us Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 28, and then we'll pray. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in their inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's look at these final three verses. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Let's pray.